Well, good morning. My name's Andres. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to share God's word with you this morning, if you're here or live, or maybe later in the afternoon or throughout the week, if you'll watch us later. Uh, The scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. If you have a Bible, you can turn towards there. Uh, If you don't, it'll be behind me on the screen, or if you've got an app, you can pull it up there as well. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29, hear God's word to you this morning. This is Jesus speaking. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for your word that it is leaving, uh, living and continues to speak to us thousands of years after they were spoken and written down. I pray that you would press them upon our hearts, that we would listen to it this morning, but then obey and do them. Give us the power by your spirit to do just that even today through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, as we uh, begin or start to enter into, as uh, Taylor mentioned, our, our new ministry year uh, during the time of COVID, I'm sure Many of you are tired of listening to that term as I am as well, but nevertheless, it is our reality. And as followers of Jesus, we know that our calling has not fundamentally changed. Our circumstances certainly have, our relationships, our proximity, and our normal routines have certainly been disrupted. Uh, I've mentioned this to several of you, but my family and I moved into a renovated home right as COVID started. Prior to that, we had had dreams of being able to host Bible studies and barbecue for our neighbors, block parties, and more. But most of those plans were disrupted within a matter of weeks in early March. Now, as Clay reminded us last weekend, in the midst of all this disruption, we can and often do lose the essence of our faith. While theologically we know that Jesus sits on his throne, practically we lose our focus. However, Jesus is still Lord and he's still at work in our neighborhoods. And if we are to follow in his footsteps, so must we be. Now, this text that we just read, Matthew 7, comes at the end of Jesus' most famous body of teaching. And what Jesus is describing throughout is what it looks 
like for someone to join his movement, to enter his kingdom. He describes the characteristics that these followers have, the things that they do, the lens through which they see the world. And it becomes clear from the very beginning that followers of Jesus live in a sort of contradiction to those around them. While their neighbors may aspire for riches, they aspire for generosity. While their co-workers may hunger for revenge, they thirst for justice. While their relatives may seek war, they look for peace. And so after much teaching, Jesus finishes his sermon by saying there are only two responses left. We either choose to obey or we choose to disobey. And both have their own sets of consequences. One way leads to life. The other way leads to chaos and destruction. So three things we'll look at from this text. First, the nature of the two paths, the outcome of two paths, and the requirements of two paths. So the nature, the outcome, and the requirements of two paths. So first, the nature of the two paths. You know, it can be easy to forget that Jesus was a teacher. While we rightly affirm that he was more than a teacher, he is Lord and King, he was certainly not less than a teacher. Throughout chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, this is on display. His listeners would have been familiar with what Jesus was doing. As a rabbi, he taught scripture, expounded on it, interpreted it, and then applied it. But what differentiated his teaching from others was what he expected his listeners to do with it. Jesus basically says, you've heard my teaching, so what are you going to do about it? See, when I listen to TED Talks, for example, I leave inspired. I leave encouraged and motivated. But do I change my whole life orientation because of it? Not necessarily. But the teachings of Jesus demand much more than a response of inspiration. And here's the point. As Sinclair Ferguson reminds us, Jesus did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order to be admired for his homiletical skills. He preached it to produce obedience. Obedience. Now, before this section, Jesus uses other similar images to illustrate how there are only two ways to live in response to his teaching. You might recall some of them. For example, he speaks about entering the narrow gate versus the wide gate. He talks about the differences between a good tree that bears good fruit and a bad tree that bears bad fruit. He then goes on to describe true disciples versus false disciples. And finally, we arrive to this illustration we have here of two builders building their home. One on a strong, solid foundation, the other on a weak, fragile foundation with two very different outcomes. Now, what is Jesus going on about with these four images, these four illustrations with which he ends the Sermon on the Mount or his teachings, his most extensive body of teaching? Well, they're basically saying the same thing. Jesus 
is very concerned with how you listen and respond to his message. He is so concerned that he tells these stories to make a very vivid point at the end of his sermon. And his point is this. The only appropriate response to the words of Jesus by followers of Jesus is obedience. The only appropriate response to the message of Jesus by followers of Jesus is obedience. You see, it is one thing to be in awe of Jesus, his person, his words, his works, and quite another to be obedient to them. And these are the differences between these two builders. This is what the forgetful hearer does in James 1. You remember that? He hears the word, maybe even says it was awesome, but then leaves and does nothing about it. Listen, good intentions will not do at this point. I mentioned to you already that uh, we renovated our home earlier this year. Uh, We saw this house in the fall of last year. You know that for several years we were living in apartments. Uh, So we saw this house, but it needed a ton of renovations. The house had not been occupied in probably over 10 years. Everything would have to be removed, pared down to its bare bones, and then essentially rebuilt from the bottom up. So we started. Now the house sits on pier and beam, if you're familiar with that foundation. And about a month in, my father-in-law drives by and says, what are you going to do about the foundation? And I reply, huh? thereby confirming uh, that I was uh, not the uh, right man for his daughter. Nevertheless, he's like the foundation. Look at how it's tilting to the side. So he takes out his tools, we walk inside, and he begins to show me. Uh, Now, obviously, you know, the foundation is supposed to be stable. It's supposed to be leveled from corner to corner, all four corners and in between. Some (laughs) sections were uneven by about six inches. Others, like nine or ten inches close to a foot. Now, to say it was bad is an understatement. Now, Nancy and I had a decision to make in that moment. We could keep going and, frankly, save money and time, or we could pause everything, take some time to fix the foundation, and then keep going. Now, you can breathe a sigh of relief. We actually did fix it. But would you agree that our house could have had a very different outcome? We could have chosen to take a faster route, to take a, frankly, easier route, not have to do the extra work, take the extra weeks to do it, invest the extra money. We could have skipped all of that, and at least from the outside, the house would have looked okay. But what would have happened if we would have left it as it was, if we would have kept going? And for example, Hurricane Laura really would have hit Houston. 60 miles per hour wind, three days of nonstop raining. Do you think our house would have survived? And even if it did, how much damage would it have done? That is what Jesus is saying, obeying him and disobeying him is like. 
to disobey him and still call ourselves his followers is to live a fundamentally flawed, incoherent, unstable, fragile, and destructive life. Which leads to the second point, the outcome of the two paths. You know, the overall pattern of these images towards the end again of the Sermon on the Mount resembles much from the Psalms, specifically Psalm 1. Now, I wanted to read it to you, but I actually don't have time. I encourage you to do it by yourself. But it talks about the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. What the Psalms remind us time and time again, and what Jesus is applying that literature to here is his own teaching. In other words, the way of the righteous that leads to life is the way of obedience to Jesus. And the way of the wicked that leads to judgment is the way of disobedience to Jesus. So let's look at what each path looks like. First, the path of life. To those who enter the small gate, to those who bear good fruit, to those identified as true disciples, and to those who build their house on the rock, Jesus promises life. Now, the word life in verse 14 is a Greek word, zoan, and it's scattered all throughout the Gospels. It refers to a life characterized primarily by knowing in a deep, intimate, personal, relational way the God of the Bible. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him. The God whose covenantal, eternal, all-encompassing love was beyond understanding and yet within reach. It's a life characterized by love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. A life that sounds too good to be true and yet is a promised possession for those who want it. In John 10.10, Jesus said that the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come, he says, that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Unlike a thief, Jesus doesn't come for selfish reasons. He comes to give, not to get. He comes that people may have life in him that is meaningful and purposeful. See, this life that Jesus promises doesn't start after death. It continues after death. But you can begin to reap the benefits of it now. Jesus says so all throughout the Gospels, but it's all over the New Testament, especially Ephesians chapter 1, where it says that God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 1 John 5.11, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Not just will have life, but they have it, they own it. It's theirs possession. Jesus brings life here and now. A life that can give you your truest identity that doesn't depend on what others say. That isn't fragile. That isn't based on your performance. And that provides unconditional love. 
A life that can offer you true freedom that won't enslave you, that won't control you, that promises a future and that cannot be taken away. A life that can satisfy your deepest hunger and thirst for meaning, purpose, adventure, relationships, acceptance, and love. Are you looking for true happiness, meaning, purpose, a grand story with an adventure that makes sense of your life? This is what Jesus is offering. But of course, you can choose a different path. And that's the way of destruction. There's an opposite destination through the wide gate, the bad tree, the falsehood, and the sand. And it's described as destruction. The Greek word is apoleion, and it refers to ruin, loss, or waste. You remember, for example, the woman who had that expensive perfume and used it to clean Jesus' feet? If we would have been there, we would have described that as a waste like the disciples did. It's that same word, apoleion. And Jesus says here, if you disobey me, the only outcome you can expect is a life of ruin, of loss, of waste, of destruction. Now, these are strong words. But they're not as far-fetched as we might initially believe you actually start to feel the effects of living this other way, even in this life. So for example, Jesus says in the sermon that there's a sort of anger against someone that is actually like murder. Where could that anger that Jesus talks about possibly lead you? Nothing good. You might say it's a waste. He teaches about lust and revenge. Where do lust and revenge lead? Nothing good. It's a loss. Where do pride, worry, anxiety, love of money, and self-righteousness lead? All topics that he touches on in these teachings. Have you ever seen these things lead to happiness? To freedom? To purpose? To meaning? No. They always lead to disaster. None of these things can lead to an abundant life. That's not the life that God intended us to live. But if we're honest, that's often how we choose to live. We look at Jesus' teaching with apprehension. A lust-free life? Impossible. Loving our enemies? Impractical. Choosing peace over war? As if a worry-free life, especially in a time of COVID, come on, Jesus, get real. We can actually understand why the crowd left the way that they did. Eugene Peterson paraphrases the last verse. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. And what was the source of their amazement? Jesus' teachings. They were interesting. They were fascinating. They were inspirational and moving. But they were also impractical. They didn't align with reality. How do we know that? Because of how they responded. Applause and then go home. 
How many times have we done this? We think listening is enough. And that superficial allegiance, casual and comfortable Christianity will suffice. But Jesus says, no, it can't. How often do we want the outcome of the path that leads to life without having to go through the requirement of obedience, of submission to Jesus, of believing that his way is better, that he might actually know what he's talking about, that he's not there primarily to serve me, to meet my needs, to feed my consumeristic tendencies. Which leads to the third and final point, the requirements of the two paths. The image that Jesus is using here is a person who not only builds on Jesus generally, but builds on his teaching specifically. In other words, what differentiates the two builders is whether or not they obey Jesus. Do you want the path that leads to life? Obey Jesus, follow Jesus, submit to Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't teaching some sort of works-based salvation. That as long as you obey and try really hard to follow his commandments, you'll receive life. He has said continually throughout the Sermon on the Mount that a person would have to be as perfect as a father is in heaven. Friends, we'll never be able to attain life by ourselves through our own obedience. How can we? We are the crowd applauding Jesus for an amazingly inspirational sermon. But then getting back to the real world of work dilemmas, of family strife, of political division, of economic uncertainty. But the path to life still demands perfect obedience, which is what Jesus did for us. He lived the perfect life, obeying the law out of love for his Father. He loved God perfectly, refusing idolatry or to give his heart, his love to other things and choosing to worship him and obey him supremely. He loved his neighbor perfectly, meeting their needs and choosing to give up his own life for the sake of their well-being. And through his death, he delivers his people from the curses of the law, releasing them from sin and death so that they are free to follow him and obey his commands out of grateful hearts. So what is required of you? That you accept his grace and rest on him alone. He has accepted you not because of your obedience, but in spite of your disobedience. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And because of what Jesus did for us, out of gratitude and love and changed hearts, like children wanting to please our Father, we want to bring him honor. And though imperfect, God is pleased with the baby steps of his children who stumble down the narrow way. 
the order in which we place these things matter. First we receive grace and then we extend that same grace. But though, though these two are distinct, they are not separate. Or as our confession of faith puts it, these good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouth of their adversaries, and glorify God whose workmanship they are. N.T. Wright comments on this passage saying, followers of Jesus are in themselves the signs of life, the language of life, the life of new creation, the life of new covenant, the life which Jesus came to bring. In other words, the behavior that Jesus says his followers should exhibit are meant to serve as signposts, pointing everyone around them to the reality that God has brought new life. This is why Australian missiologist Michael Frost writes that Christians are to be like movie trailers for the kingdom. We're to live in such a way that when others see us, they say, I want to be a part of that. Or I wish the world was like that. This is what Jesus meant when he said earlier in the sermon, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Now, whether we like it or not, our churches and our lives are being viewed like movie trailers by others, especially during this season. When not yet Christians look at our families, they're whispering to themselves and to one another, either I'll have to check that out or I wouldn't want to be part of that. The early followers of Jesus, our ancestors in the faith, practiced kingdom living in their everyday lives in such a way that others were drawn to them and to their communities. This is why the Christian faith exploded in the first three centuries from around 25,000 to over 15 million, maybe as high as 20 million Christians. People saw previews of the kingdom practiced in the churches and in the lives of believers and they wanted to be part of it. Do you believe this message? Do you trust that what Jesus is saying is true? Do you believe that his way is better? Do you trust him that when he says his way leads to life? Well then, what are you going to do about it. Let's pray. Jesus, you are Lord and you are Savior. You make demands of your followers, demands of obedience to your commandments and set a standard very high. And yet, you are a faithful Savior, who broke the curse of the law. And because of your death, we now have access to the Father. We have new life and we walk in new life. 
And by the power of your spirit, you make us eager and ready to follow you and to obey you. So I pray that you would shape and mold our church, our people to follow in your footsteps. That we would live and model countercultural lives. That when others look at us, our families and our communities, they would glorify you. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.